Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, back to When Diplomacy Fails for this State of the Podcast Address on the 4th of January, 2024. I hope you're doing well. It's been a while. In case you were somehow unaware, this absence has been down to a single cause, the PhD. But now both the thesis and the viva are finished, and I'm waiting on a date for the graduation ceremony. Everything on my side's finished, and I can confirm that my thesis passed with very minor corrections, which is apparently the best possible result, because picture-perfect PhD theses don't exist, apparently. This all means, drumroll please, you're now listening to Dr. Zachary Twomley. I can't say that without a massive smile on my face, but of course, just call me Zach. I think we should take a moment to appreciate the significance of this moment. We've come a long way since 2012. It's nearly 12 years since When Diplomacy Fails released its first episode, when I began a journey which became one of the foundational experiences of my life. It should be stated for the record, without When Diplomacy Fails, there is no Dr. Zack. And I know it's a cliche, but I really couldn't have done this without you. It's because of your response to this podcast over the last decade that I gradually acquired the confidence, the knowledge, and the ambition to go further, and that led me eventually to the PhD. We don't need to get into a biography of me right now, I'm sure I've said these things in some fashion or another at some point before, but I've always struggled with imposter syndrome, stemming from the collapse of my plans in 2010, when I failed to get into my intended History and English course in University College Dublin. But long story short, I took a different route, a post-leaving cert course, which in my hubris I had dismissed as an option B for losers, but this loser embraced that course as his true last chance to get into university, and after passing that course, I acquired my place for my BA in history, now with politics, that'll become important later, in UCD for September 2011. So you can probably guess how much of a history noob I was when barely six months after getting into this university degree, 
I apprehensively contacted David Crowther of the History of England and asked if he would allow me to do a guest episode as a way of promoting this new history podcast I wanted to launch called When Diplomacy Fails. So while everyone else was scrunching up their faces at the mention of the word podcast, myself and my peers in this incredible community of history podcasters, well, we pushed ever onward, didn't we? Confident that people would be interested in stories far removed from the mainstream. As I eventually, gradually, sometimes painfully, found my voice, I also found out a startling truth. I was actually more passionate about all this historical stuff than I had expected. Imagine that. In fact, it wasn't just an interest. It was an obsession. And I'm not just talking about Bismarck. This podcast was so valuable because it gave me the freedom to research and write about those areas of history which were often ignored or neglected, but which were fascinating in their own right. Since you seemed to care so much, I also had a reason to do all of this, and the required work was justified by your reaction. This creative freedom was so liberating that to this day I still see that summer of 2012 as one of my favourites. It also taught me that people care about this stuff too, and tremendously, you trust me enough to take you through it. This pushed me to undertake the Masters, which I finished in 2015. I got a few adult jobs while balancing when diplomacy fails at the same time, and after a few years, in autumn 2019, you were informed that the next leg of this journey had begun. So that's how we got here, but you may also be a bit curious to know how it's been. What was it like doing a history PhD in Dublin, in the midst of Covid, and as the world seems to be semi-imploding before your eyes? Well, stick around to the end of this episode where I'll be answering those questions. But for now, we need to talk about something a little bit more pressing. What is When Diplomacy Fails going to do next? There's been no new episodes in the feed since August 2023, and some of you have contacted me wondering if I'm ever coming back. Well, to set your mind at rest, When Diplomacy Fails is coming back, but we're returning to our weekly release schedule. And, and... We're bringing a new series for patrons. I am really excited to announce that this Patreon series will be a serialised version of my PhD thesis, where I break down each section episode by episode, and we unwrap my findings together. But what about us regular listeners who understandably spent their money on better things once I vanished from your earphones? Well, this is where some of you may be delighted and others may feel a little bit miffed. You see, my overriding goal was to relaunch When Diplomacy Fails with regular content. But since my brain pretty much collapsed in on itself once I finished up the PhD, and there's only been a short amount of time, and look guys, I'm doing my best here, okay? Basically, I would have to improvise, I realised this, and I'd have to do something I've never done before. So this is your official announcement. The next podcast series for regular listeners will be... 1956. You may be unfamiliar with this series, but we released it for patrons in 2018 to 2019, hence the portion of you that may feel miffed, because in fairness you had to pay for it back then, and now you're getting it for free. But since the choice, now for me, was either no new series, or a series many of you haven't heard but would really appreciate, to me it didn't really seem like much of a choice at all. At the risk of offending you lovely patrons, I promise you'll still get value for money because as far as content goes, 2024 is destined to be a bumper year. 
In this new season of podcasting, I've adjusted our release schedule somewhat. Every Monday, a new episode of our PhD thesis series will be released, and every Thursday, you'll get a new episode of 1956. Now, I should say, this is broadly true, this schedule, but I'm happy to report that until the first week of April, 1956 will be out twice a week. So to recap, every Monday there'll be a new thesis episode and until the first week of April, every Tuesday and Thursday there'll be a new episode of 1956. Now if you were wondering why it is that I'm releasing so much content all at once and bombarding you with this stuff, I will say that probably the best way to resurrect a podcast that's been neglected for some time is to do a bombardment of content like this and since 1956 is A really great story, I don't think you'll mind all that much. For patrons, this translates into over two hours of extra content a month, because some of those thesis episodes will be lengthy. Spoiler alert. I'm not sure who needs so many hours of me every month. It does feel great to be able to return to weekly programming. Even though it is more work, it's also somehow more energising and encouraging. There's something really exhausting about releasing every fortnight. I'm not sure why it feels more tiring to do it every two weeks rather than every week. Maybe it has something to do with watching the downloads plunge. So, if you're excited for When Diplomacy Fails' relaunch, please tell your history-loving friends about it, and maybe say hello on our Facebook group if you're feeling sociable. For those that want to introduce themselves or reintroduce themselves to the world of 1956, Stay with us as we explain how this series will work and what you can expect from it. 1956 is, in my opinion, a fascinating series which explores the tumultuous period following Stalin's death in the USSR and then examines the utter disaster which was the Suez Crisis. The Soviet period of what's called de-Stalinization provoked revolts in Poland and Hungary with heroic if tragically doomed stories to match. It's my view that if we were to rank British catastrophes post-World War II, only Brexit compares to the blatant disaster which was Suez. There was also more going on, whether in the struggles of a decolonizing France, a conspiratorial Israel, or the spectacle of an even more conspiratorial British government. We're also in the early phases of a Cold War world, divided between capitalism and communism, with fault lines becoming more pronounced. Stalin's death did not end the Cold War, but it did presage a new era in the Soviet Union, a period you might be able to call soul-searching in a way. Contemporaries had to look in the mirror and ask if all this repression was truly worthwhile, or more scarily, if this repression was actually the only thing holding the Iron Curtain upright. If you've listened to the Korean War series, the 1956 series serves as a pretty good sequel. But if you're shaking your fist right now, lamenting that you had to pay to access this series several years ago or even recently, I hope you'll feel assured that a Whopper series exclusive to patrons is coming your way. And no, I'm not just talking about the PhD thesis series I just mentioned. Oh no, this is your official notice that the next podcast project on my production calendar is The Age of Bismarck. And I plan 2024 to be the year when the Age of Bismarck finally becomes reality. 
In preparation for the relaunching of 1956, I discovered to my immense embarrassment that in the first script presenting that series in 2018, I referred to the Age of Bismarck and my intentions to cover it as soon as possible. The fact that I said these things in a script I wrote more than five years ago really exposes how long you've been waiting for Age of Bismarck, but it also shows how pointless it is to make promises or even to make plans. I found an old copybook of mine with some frankly hilarious plans for When Diplomacy Fails outlined within, and let's just say 2018 Zack had some incredible optimism. Then again, if you told 2018 Zack that within five years he'd be Dr. Zack, I don't really think he'd believe you. And I don't know what job I will have or where it will be, but I do know that until autumn 2024, at least, I will have more time to work on this baby of mine and its associated babies, such as Matchlock and any other projects I can think of. But let's see how true this is as we progress. Now, all that out of the way, if you'll indulge me, or if not, feel free to leave this episode right now and listen to the next one, but if you will indulge me, I'd like to speak about my experience and the surprising toll this PhD took on me. It's been a truly intense few years, and I know in When Diplomacy Fails land, we throw around words like intensity, stressful, and difficult, like they were words on a bingo card, but this needs to be said. Doing a PhD in history or anything else is really hard. And I know, yes, it's supposed to be hard. PhD is the highest you can go when it comes to qualifications and historical research. And I did expect this to be difficult. Its four-year duration strongly suggested I was in for a long slog when I first began in September 2019. But there's different types of difficult. Believe me when I tell you, I struggled to imagine what this new species of difficult would look like, and in the last year particularly, I think I finally understand. My fellow Irish citizen might say I had some notions about how the PhD was going to go, and what it would look like. But if you're a seasoned listener, you might say this was Zach doing more of the same, committing to a gigantic project regardless of his personal well-being, or his friends and family, And this isn't a pity party, because if I wanted to feel sorry for myself for having the privilege of doing a PhD, then considering the state of the world, that would be selfish and ridiculous. And it's also not my wish to put you off further research, if that's what you're interested in. But I know for a fact that several of my history podcasting peers have completed PhDs, and I don't see them moaning about the process. Well, this is where I come in. As I'll get into, this experience absolutely made me a better historian, and, let's hope, a better podcaster, which is all that really matters, right? But just in case you thought I was some kind of robotic creation machine, you must know even my ridiculously overworking self struggled like I've never struggled with anything else. This process also changed me. I'm now a more capable researcher and historian than I ever imagined possible. My knowledge, my methodology, my appreciation for historical research processes, yada yada yada, all those dry, dusty academic things, but let's just say I have a new appreciation for them, and they've all been substantively upgraded. We're told as PhD students that the journey will be difficult and we will have to push ourselves. Only you can know what you're capable of, and there were certainly moments when I doubted my abilities not only to finish this colossus on time, 
but to finish it at all. And I know things dried up in the summer, but you have to understand, for me, the summer of 2023 was like a frantic blur of editing, last-minute research, and a whole lot, a whole lot of sweaty typing. Originally, actually, I wrote the script for this State of the Podcast in October, a few days after handing in the thesis when I was in a weird celebratory phase, yet still not finished the degree. Over the last few months, though, I've basically been trying to regain my old energy and enthusiasm, which meant I really had to step away from pretty much everything work-wise for my own mental health and have the first real break from anything history-related in quite a while. Initially, this script captured this sense of limbo. I was finished the biggest task, that is, the thesis, but I still had the viva. I wasn't yet free. I should have felt triumphant after finishing that viva, but all I felt was tired. But the passage of a few months has restored some of this energy, and fortunately a lot of my enthusiasm. I'm still not entirely back to myself, I don't think so anyway, but finishing the Viva and looking ahead to the new year has helped reinvigorate me to the point where the sense of dread which rippled through my stomach whenever I thought of sitting at my desk and making a new project, well, this has been replaced with a cautious optimism. You could even call it excitement. To save you further gory details, this process did take a toll on my mental and physical health, and I think I needed that break to get myself back together and replenish my batteries. This doesn't necessarily mean you'd face similar challenges if you were to do a PhD, because, like, in some ways, I was my own worst enemy over the last few years. And as a kind of spoiler alert, when it came to researching and writing this thesis, well, things didn't go very well. I was in what I like to call podcast mode, in that I was focusing on the narrative history side of things and neglecting the analytical aspect of history. After so many months of stop-start progress, I concluded I would have to learn how to properly write analytical history if this thesis was ever going to be finished. But this was never a problem I expected to have. You see, I've read feedback from you, which emphasised how much you identified with my style of mixing narrative with analysis. That's grand, I thought. I already know how to do analysis. But even when I became better at measuring my conclusions and comparing the case studies and offering my informed opinion on what it all meant, my thesis didn't really begin to take on any momentum until late 2022. Unbelievable, though it may sound, it was only when I was less than a year away from the due date that my approach became clear. By that point, I had a whole load of notes and draft sections I'd rejected, but not much in the way of finished work, and certainly not certifiable chapters ready for the examiner. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So when I say that I spent the year before my due date working at a new rate of intensity, you'll have to take my word for it. I pushed myself so hard, developing new ways to get each chapter done on time, and setting aside time I didn't have to keep pushing that boulder up the hill. To put it another way, I basically researched and wrote this thesis over the course of a year, and I wouldn't recommend this strategy. Sometimes working beyond the point when my brain and my eyes screamed at me to stop because everything had run out of juice, and it wasn't like I could get away from it. The thesis accompanied me everywhere, both literally and mentally, since the latest chapter drafts were always on my phone, And even if I wanted to, I couldn't get it out of my head even when staring at the ceiling at 2am. The inescapable nature of this process is clearly unhealthy, but it's only when you reach the end of it and you realise you're actually a little bit upset that it will soon be finished and you have to do something else that you realise how obsessed you've become, even though at the same time you're really sick of it. It's like a kind of weird academic Stockholm syndrome in a way. Maybe other people would have approached this better. Maybe they would have done things more evenly and not failed to figure out everything until a year before. But for me personally, the thesis was like a weight on your chest, a knot in your stomach and a lump in your throat all at the same time. And it also demanded a lot. Of course it did. But one of the things it demanded was reading. It wants you to read everything in case you miss something. And there's always more to read. Since my topic was mostly untouched by historians, you might think there was less for me to read. But then you're even more worried, because what if you miss a defining piece of research that's really hard to find because it would be really niche, but what if you miss it and it's after addressing everything you've done before? Even more terrifyingly, this almost happened. Barely a month before submission, I found several articles that were invaluable, and it actually scares me a little bit how close I was to missing them. On a more positive note, in the last year or so, I really came to understand just how much I love historical research. It really brings me joy to find a load of articles on a niche subject from decades ago and compare the differing opinions before reaching my own. This is the historical process in its purest form, and nothing places me in that coveted flow state better than engaging with these materials and providing my own impressions. You probably aren't too surprised to hear this. Setting out my views on a given topic is literally what When Diplomacy Fails is all about. But there was something different in this case. Maybe it's because I felt there was so much on the line this time. 
I screw up on this show, you take me to task, and I feel a bit embarrassed. New England isn't a state, etc., etc. It's no big deal. I'm, I'm, I'm not as sensitive as I used to be. Please do tell me if I get something wrong. But in the context of a PhD, I found this expectation that I was supposed to give my opinion somewhat crippling. Yes, the imposter syndrome again. Whatever you feel about this kind of thing... It's real. I can tell you it's a genuine thing, and it bit and clawed at my confidence, and the fear that I would gigantically screw all this up and be exposed as a huge fraud, well, that was always a constant companion, and was sometimes paralysing. Now, you might be wondering, as I often wonder to myself, why can't I just say, hey, I've done X, and listeners loved it, why wouldn't I be able to do this? But my brain doesn't seem to be evidence-based in this way. It doesn't take into account the projects that you've loved or the projects that brought me satisfaction. If you've been listening for a while now, well, you'll know I'm not the most confident person. Maybe because of my Irishness or my awkwardness, but I'm never really able to believe people when they compliment me. And I think on some level, I realised that the PhD was my chance to change all of this, to prove to myself that... I'm damn good at history, and to give myself the undeniable evidence I need to get over this imposter syndrome and appreciate my abilities for what they are. If I could just add those letters to my name, if I could just be Dr. Zack, all my issues would vanish. I wouldn't have to explain myself to anyone, if that makes sense, and I could just stand beside those historians whose confidence seriously intimidates me. Now, this motivation, whatever you want to call it, I wouldn't say it's particularly healthy or even justified, but what it leads to is me not wanting to just do the PhD, but wanting to smash it, to do better than I ever imagined possible, than Trinity College Dublin ever imagined possible, and certainly better than those who once thought of me as a kid who was bad at maths and pretty much mediocre at everything else. All PhD students place some version of this pressure on themselves, and I know I'm not unique. If you don't run out of money or energy first, you're just as likely to run out of self-confidence. That's why you need to have a superior that is actually competent. Interesting fact for you, though, Trinity College Dublin doesn't have a dedicated British history section or a dedicated British history staff. This has struck me for some time as really weird, considering the late 16th century origins of Trinity as Queen Elizabeth's Protestant College for Loyal Irishmen. Hopefully I fit that bill. Unfortunately, though, I think there is still a hesitation when it comes to British history in Irish universities, and I don't want to generalise, but among my fellow PhD students, I was pretty much... No, I, I was the only one looking at British history. The vast majority were occupied by Irish history, or some flavour of it. I mean, what else do you expect in Ireland, right? Fair enough. But this is all to say my supervisor wasn't a specialist in British history from years A to Z. He was instead one of us, a 17th century researcher, more naturally interested in the British Civil War or debates on religious questions than on what Queen Victoria was doing. It's thus a testament to Professor Robert Armstrong's historical chops, not to mention his immense reserves of patience and kindness that he managed to fit me in. Not only that... Our mixture of interests and knowledge gelled incredibly well. I was aware of this from our very first meeting back in early 2019 when we were both trying to see if he could supervise me. 
we spent half the meeting talking about my research plans, and the rest of it talking about the Thirty Years' War. I think having a supervisor mostly removed from the Victorian era helped me with developing the bigger picture when it came to national honour and all its implications. So of course, there have been bright spots, many bright spots along the way, but arguably the brightest spot of all was finishing this thesis a week before the due date. Not bad considering the state I was in the year before, but also proof that the supervisor is essential to a well-oiled process. Even as I pressed the submit button and whispered yay to myself, though, I was confronted with another issue. I spent so many years longing for this thing to be over, that now I'm on the verge of graduating. All those projects and ideas that kept me going, all those dreams of bringing history to you guys aren't with what I've learned here. I can tell you in all honesty, when I sit down to plan any of it, I do feel just a little bit overwhelmed. Kicking several of my favourite cans down the road for so long means that when you finally have to pay attention to those cans, even if you love them, the combination of their sheer number and my own ambitious vision for everything creates this toxic soup of cans. Uh, Well, a, a, a lot of pressure, basically. And I know, poor me, I get to talk about things that fascinate me and then get rewarded for it. But I'm not a carefree young adult anymore, guys. This podcast is my career, at least until autumn of this year when I can hopefully get some form of job to justify the PhD. And maybe that's the real source of the pressure. The time, energy and expense of the PhD was such that things can't just be business as usual afterwards, right? It has to lead me to something greater, to the next level of adulthood or the next phase of my professional development. But this Next phase isn't entirely clear to me right now. I don't know when or even if this new job offer will arrive. This is the cringy part where I say if you have a job opening in research, writing or teaching, do contact me through the usual channels. Now, I know I'm a better historian than I was pre-PhD, but I'm just being honest when I say this doesn't entitle me to a tremendous job. And this truth is hard to swallow. In more positive news, I must take the time to properly thank you. Please know I've seen your comments, I've read your reviews, I've marvelled at your Patreon support, and I've seen you continue to download the show. I watched you engage in Facebook discussions in our group, despite the fact I've been wholly absent from it for weeks at a time. I know you still care, despite content drying up altogether, and I still get brought to tears when I receive a lovely email. So please keep sending them, wdfpodcast at hotmail.com. I'm doing my best to filter out the spam, but there's always room for you in my inbox. When I posted that photo of myself chilling out in Malta for our post-thesis holiday in a glorious rooftop infinity pool, oh, I wish I could go back there, but when I posted that photo, I was stunned at the genuine care you seem to have for me. It's still so weird to me that my nitty-gritty explorations of extremely niche history have resonated with so many thousands of people. Weirder still is the enthusiasm and passion you have, and the gratitude you have to me for bringing it to you. Considering my track record of bringing you this niche history, it seemed only right to bring you what I've been working on over the last few years. It's also keeping with tradition, since I released a mini-series of my master's dissertation, many years ago, all the way back in 2015. It's still in the feed, but you may notice that Masters series was only six episodes long. 
This time, as a Royal Navy officer probably said in the Victorian period, we're going to need a bigger boat. To bring you my PhD thesis in podcast form, well, it presents several challenges in format and approach, some of which seemed insurmountable when I really started to think about it. One problem was its sheer size. At 100,000 words in length, obviously it would require more than six episodes, but the challenge was deeper than its scope. At the risk of sounding like a condescending ass, the work I did here was really complicated, and it's not that I don't think you'll understand what I'm saying, it's more that it's quite different to the series I've tackled before. I don't honestly know if you will find it interesting, and I don't know if this podcast format will help you or hinder you in your efforts to keep up with all the terminology and ideas I throw at you. But on the other hand, I sincerely believe that what I produced here is really important, because it will shine a new light on how diplomacy worked in the 19th century and before. I believe it opens up fascinating new questions about the culture of honour, how honour works in international relations, how it's factored into conflicts, both colonial and on a grander scale. I think it will surprise people who think they know about the importance of newspapers or parliamentary speeches or fascinating contemporary literature. In an episode released a while back, early 2023 I believe, I summarised some of my findings on national honour in as digestible a format as possible and many of you really did seem interested, eager to debate and curious to learn more. This curiosity is important because if you've ever wondered what historical research at the PhD level actually looks like, this should give you an idea of the standards that are expected. For these reasons, I really want you to listen to it. I want you to read it too, which is why I'll be providing scripts for each of these episodes. And there will be a Patreon post where you can download the entire thesis to read in your own time. And yes, I did say Patreon several times, because... Unfortunately, I still need money in order to survive. For more honesty, there was no time at all to craft a new Patreon series between now and Age of Bismarck, and since patrons provided the funding which genuinely paid for the PhD, it seemed both logical and just to make this series a Patreon exclusive. I'm sorry if you're disappointed in this, but a secondary reason is security, because these days with idea thieves on the prowl and AI capable of recreating complex projects, sometimes, I was truly worried that releasing this into the internet wouldn't be a good idea, but by putting it behind this Patreon wall, I can at least guarantee that only those interested in my work will see it, and I believe those of you in a position to support are very unlikely to take advantage of me in that way. When you spend this long making something, you become ridiculously protective of it. There's a great meme doing the rounds where a woman gives thanks for the birth of her child, but when you look closely at the picture you can see she's cradling her thesis, and that really resonates with me after all these years. But there is also a freedom in presenting it to the world. I suppose this is my way of almost releasing these feelings and fears and saying, This is it, make of it what you will, and now I can let it go. And finally, we need to talk about the future, specifically the age of Bismarck. We've already touched Bismarck's rise to prominence in Bismarck Rise, and I had originally planned to do Bismarck Triumph, covering his two victories against Austria and France, followed by Bismarck Reign, which would cover the period 1871 
until his retirement. Upon further consideration, though, it seemed more sensible to just dive right into The Age of Bismarck, a series I wanted to make since Patreon was a thing, evidently. The current plan is for this to be the next big Patreon series, but when diplomacy fails isn't Spider-Man. We don't need to rehash the origin story of Bismarck time and again. To ensure we get into the meat of it right away, we're going to pick up the story from autumn 1864, in other words, few weeks after Bismarck rise ended, by which point Denmark is defeated and Berlin and Vienna were already giving each other the side eye. Age of Bismarck will look at the period 1864 to essentially 1890 when the Iron Chancellor was forced out, and it'll give us a chance to examine not only his victories but also his failures while he tried to hold it all together. We'll be free to look at other actors too, since although it is Bismarck's age, he's not the only star in this play. Even just talking about it now has me excited, and I know many of you have been holding out signing up on Patreon until it's ready. Well, you can hopefully trust me at this point. I mean, who wouldn't trust a doctor? The idea is to make a seamless transition from the thesis series to the age of Bismarck so that patrons are just never able to get away from me. At the very least, though, the age of Bismarck will be out this year. I'm committing myself to it now. So make sure you get into the mood by refreshing your memory with Bismarck Rise. For you patrons, indifferent at the prospect of listening to or reading my thesis, I hope The Age of Bismarck serves as a suitable recompense. I have additional plans, which I will keep to myself for now, but rest assured, 2024 is going to be a chunky year of content. The sleeping giant is awake, and with the PhD done with, I can finally return to doing what I love most of all. Playing Crusader Kings 3, I mean, bringing you history in the only way I can. So make sure you catch the next episode presenting this new season of... Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When diplomacy fails, where I'll get into more details on 1956 and what this thesis series will look like. But for now, I am Dr. Zach. Imagine that. And you've been listening to our State of the Podcast address. Thanks so much for listening and for all your support and well wishes over the last year, guys. I'll be seeing you all very soon. <laughs>